but your standard is God, it's Jesus. And so what does that do? It draws us forward in being more loving. That's, I think, Jesus' main point here. The standard is not simply the Pharisees or the scribes or the best of religious leaders. Your standard of love is God himself. So don't stop loving. Don't stop progressing. Don't stop growing. And how do I know that? Well, there's commands all over scripture that we are to be holy, even as believers, that we are to be holy as whom? God is holy. That's what the scripture says. That's the standard of sanctification. Peter is clear. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. And maybe for some of you in our congregation who depend upon the rain to make the grass grow so you can cut it for people, this hits you a little bit closer. Yeah, God causes the rain to fall so that the unrighteous lawn service and the righteous lawn service can both mow the lawn and live and eat and play. Not just you, righteous mower of lawns. But also that company that constantly undercuts you in the bid So, God loves righteous and unrighteous. And I I would put it this way. It is not bare providence that causes the sun to warm the ground and the rain to refresh the crops of godless pagans. It is the beneficent love of God that does this. That is Jesus' whole point. It cannot be avoided. It cannot be dispersed with theology. His whole point is I'm loving them while they're living. They're on this earth. They're receiving the direct benefits of my love. It is safe and biblical to say that God's love is such that he looks for ways to righteously lavish it even on those who hate and reject him. Be careful of a theology that says all that God is doing in this world is looking for ways to judge the wicked. He will, God's wrath is upon them. He will ultimately bring judgment to them, but he is also graciously loving them and providing them enjoyment while they live. This is what our text teaches, even though they hate him, and even for those who will never come to know him on this earth, because it is certain that all unrighteous people who receive sun and rain will not come to him. All do not repent and believe. And God actively loves them. Now, this is sometimes called common grace. I don't like the term, because it sounds like, well, this is, again, it sounds like a byproduct. Just kind of, everybody kind of gets it. Well, this is special. It's a special love of God. Now, It's not the same love of God as he has for his elect. We'll talk about that in a minute. Those whom God has chosen from before the beginning of time who respond to him in repentance and faith that that he directed and predetermined ahead of time receive the special benefits of the electing love of God as his direct children. That's a wonderful and special thing, but it does not undo his special love on unbelievers that he doesn't have to give. It's common simply because it happens to all, I guess we could say, 
The idea of common grace is that, one, everyone receives the blessings of sun and rain and life and breath generally, in that God does not allow unbelievers to do all the evil they could. That is a great blessing, not only to us, but also to them. But it is a special grace of God. There's nothing ever common about God's grace or about his love. It's, see, because common sounds like accidental. It isn't accidental. Our text here says it's purposeful. He's showing his grace on them and loving them because he is love. And this is his nature. This is what he does. But again, I'll just put it this way. There's no accidental love of God. It is always purposeful. It has different ends. It has different means. It has different effects. But it is all the love of God. Because God is love. Now, how can God do this? This is because God can both hate and love sinners at the same time. Because again, I know resounding in your mind are a host of passages about how God hates sin and hates the sinner. He sends sinners to hell. So how does this work? Well, first, and we talked about this a little last week, this is God has a judicial, righteous hatred of sin and sinners because they violate his character and nature and because they reject his son. And so Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is, they reject God. And so therefore he has a holy hatred of their sin and of their character as it were as sinners. And so his wrath is upon them. Wrath is the holy hatred of God, the righteous hatred of God. We don't undo this by saying that he also loves them. He can do both. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so it is true that there is a hatred of God towards sin and the sinner that is being enacted even now. Romans 14, 10 speaks of kind of the, the final, excuse me, Revelation 14, 10 speaks of the, the culmination of that. It speaks about those who take the mark of the beast who are simply representative of those who abandon God and worship ultimately Satan at the end of the age. He says, these will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. God does not make excuses for his hatred of sin or his punishment of sinners. And yet... That does not undo our text or undo the nature of God's love. He can love sinners and have wrath against their sin, have a holy hatred towards them at exactly the same time. This is what Scripture speaks to. It is not one or the other. God is full in his characteristics. His love is found even when his wrath abides upon the sinner. God has a deep and strong Love for those who are caught in the clutches of sin. Now, again, we cannot match the perfection of God in this. But some say, you know, God can do that, we can't. I disagree. We are called to do both. To have a hatred of sin in the sinner, the character of the sinner that drives him to hate God, but also to love him in a way that understands his condition and that cares for him as a creation of God who is under the wrath of God. You see, we would have a holy hatred of a man who raped our daughter because we love our daughter. But we could and should have a godly love for him that would cause us to pray for and work for his salvation. That's the kind of thing that Christians are called to do. And because we have the love of God within us, because we have been born of God, we can actually do this. Not, not a false, foolish, well, I just forgive whoever sins against me no matter how deep the sin may be. That's just foolishness. Understanding the weightiness of sin, yes, but a love that is driven by God himself, even over those who sin in heinous ways. This is the love of God. 
Let, let's just consider a couple examples because you still may not be convinced. And, and I'm not so much thinking that I have to convince you as I'd like to overwhelm you with the love of God in the sense that even for unbelievers who, who rebel against him, that he, his love is so great that he can love even them so that you might have the same love and that you might be overwhelmed in a similar way. Consider Nineveh, a city that had been tremendously, the Assyrians had been tremendously hurtful to the people of God, the ethnic people of God, the Jews. And who does God send Jonah to? Seemingly randomly. Nothing God does is random. He says, Jonah, I want you to go and preach repentance to this evil group of people who is harmful to your own people because I have compassion on them. He could have picked anyone, but he sends Jonah to the most difficult, foul, pagan people on the face of the earth. And Jonah says, forget it. I'm not going. I don't have the love that you have. Nobody does not say that directly, but that is clear. So God has to have him swallowed by a fish, thrown up on the land, literally, right? Walking maybe in, you know, in his stinking staleness into Nineveh. Maybe that helped out his message a little bit. All pale and digested, half digested from the juices in the whale. He goes and proclaims, but he, but he hates it all along the way. Repent, repent, repent. And I hope they don't repent. I hope they don't repent. I hope they don't repent. That is not God's attitude, and Jonah knows it. He comes out and he sits on the hill. He goes, I'm going to watch because I think you're going to forgive him, and I hate that. He tells him, I think you're going to do it. God says, you're right. You know, God causes. Now, even in that, what does God do for Jonah? He loves him. He causes the plant to grow to shade him from the blazing heat. That's a point. Making a point, certainly. He causes the plant to die. Jonah's mad. He's mad in a hornet. It's not mad that and, and, and hurt and grieved that 120,000 people are about to go to destruction. But he's really sad that he doesn't get the little plant that he wanted. And God says this to him. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion? And please, don't read compassion as something less than love. People do that. Like, I just had compassion. You didn't really love them. Are you kidding me? Compassion flows from love always in Scripture. It says, I have compassion on this people. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right and left hand? Maybe that was just even children that were there. And as well as many animals. What an amazing thought. God, even if he brings judgment, everybody dies and the animals perish as well. God loves his creation. We made that point last week. He says, Jonah, you don't even have a love, the same kind of love I have for Nineveh. Did everyone in Nineveh come to Christ when they repented? No. Did everyone in Nineveh benefit from God's gracious love that brought some to Christ, yes, but just was simply good and gracious even to those who did not repent, yes, they benefited. And Jonah would have none of it. Might we not have the same heart? Might we not be the same way? Shall I not have compassion? Now, there's many, many other examples in Scripture. Now, sometimes people will, will quickly say to me, but, but what about Esau? I mean, you, Romans 9, right? Take it by love, but Esau, I hate it. See, there it is. If you're not elect of God, God hates you. There's a sense in which there's truth to that in God's judicial hatred of sinners, of which Esau was one, an unrepentant sinner. God had that righteous judicial hatred on him. And in that sense, Esau never ultimately came to God. He, he never repented. But do you know what God did for Esau while he lived? You say, if you say the love of God is not extended on the earth, there's only hatred, he pours out his wrath. What did God do for Esau? Do you remember? He gave him a nation. He made him an entire nation. And in fact, when Israel was coming into the promised land, 
God says, don't mess with Esau, Deuteronomy 2.5. Don't provoke them, for I, have not, for I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. He blessed Esau, he blessed his offspring, he blessed him as a nation. That is the love of God extended to even an unrepentant, unbelieving sinner. How about Ishmael? I mean, Ishmael really the epitome, the example in Scripture of the one who was not chosen, much as Esau was. Isaac was chosen. Esau was not unto salvation, a different kind of love, the electing love of God for those whom he has chosen. But Ishmael was given what? Also a great nation, promised by God that God would bless him and strengthen him. Amazing. Because God loves even, as it were, the non-elect. He loves even those who are his enemies and remain his enemies. Remember, he loved all of us as his enemies when we came into the world. He continues to love enemies who do not come to him ever. As long as they are alive, that love is extended towards them. You remember Jesus. Now, is there anyone in Scripture who portrays the love of God for unbelievers better than Jesus? Who came and walked amongst unbelievers? He healed unbelievers. And I'm equating unbelievers with enemies at this point because, again, that's that's the primary meaning here. He healed them. He fed them. He, 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 he blessed them in every way. We, it's clear that everyone that Jesus healed was not a believer. And in fact, it, probably the cl- most clear place where this is found is when Jesus actually preaches to someone who totally rejects him to his face. That's the rich young ruler, remember. After the rich young ruler rejects him, yeah, he, he rests on his own self-righteousness. Jesus says, keep the commandments. The rich young ruler comes and says, how can I be saved? Keep the commandments. I've done that. I'm perfect in the eyes of the law. I don't need God. I don't need the Messiah. I just want you to tell me how I, how I get into the kingdom. That's how I benefit from the kingdom. He rejects God, rejects Jesus. Looking at him, Jesus said, you sinner who rejected me, go away from me. You have nothing to do with me. No, I didn't make you turn there, but you know that's not what it said. It says Jesus felt a love for him. I told him one thing you lack, go and sow all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Did the rich young ruler do that? No, there's no indication anywhere in Scripture that he did. He said he went away sad. At that moment, he was directly rejecting God. And there are many such who did so. God can have multiple loves. And please, let's remember that. He has a love for the sinner and a love for his children, those who believe in him through repentance and faith, those whom he has chosen from before the beginning of time. The love is not exactly the same, and it does not have the same effect, but it is still love. And you and I both know that this can happen. In regards again to the love of the sinner, and really finally here, Ezekiel 33.11, God says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? That loving call is extended to every one of us, to all who sin and fall. The, The call of God, the love of God extended in that way, that he hates the death death of the wicked, that he calls on them to turn, even though we know that that those who do not receive the full weight of the punishment of sin. God has a love for the sinner and a love for the elect. Just as a human father, in addition to uniquely loving his own sons and daughters, has room in his heart for his neighbor's children, is even for all the children in the world, so also the Father in heaven, in addition to sustaining an altogether peculiar or unique relationship of tender concern and intimate fellowship towards those who, by grace, are his very own. He loves mankind in general. Can you sing, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world? You 
can because he does. It does not mean he saves them all, but he loves them all. He also then has a special electing love for those who are his own. And God has allowed this, and again, this is something that we understand. We know that there are differing degrees, levels, and interactions of love. Scripture clearly portrays this, and we simply believe what Scripture says. We don't have to undo one for the other. It does not make the love of God for his children less when he loves those who do not become his children much, even though he loves us with a love that has greater effect and eternal impact. God loves with a particular love as well, says John MacArthur. It is a family love, the ultimate love of an eternal father for his children, It is the consummate love of a bridegroom for his bride. It is an eternal love that guarantees their salvation from sin and its ghastly penalty. That special love is reserved for believers alone. But limiting this saving everlasting love to his chosen ones does not render God's compassion, mercy, goodness, and love for the rest of mankind insincere or meaningless. It is not, and we must not hold it out to be that way. One more example here. Again, MacArthur, he says, We know that Scripture presents different kinds of love. He says, I love my wife. That's in accord with Scripture, but clearly my love for my wife is superior both in excellence and in degree to my love for my neighbor. I chose my wife. I didn't choose my neighbor. I willingly brought my wife into my family to live with me for the rest of our lives. There's no reason to conclude that since I do not afford the same privilege to my neighbors, my love for them is not real and genuine. So we, we, we know this inherently. We see it in Scripture. Let us be careful never to deny it. And some of you are going, we didn't deny it. You're coming after us, but we didn't. Because none of us live this as we should. And when we lose sight of the greatness of God's love extended even to the unrepentant sinner, much less considering the love of God for the sinner who repents and, and his gracious work in his heart to save him for all of eternity, because we should be overwhelmed in both ways, pouring out then our love for, for enemy and friend, for neighbor, and and enemy, all in in fullest degree, as we will see. So God has a love for the sinner and a love for the elect. They are both loves. They have different effect. They originated at different times. And ultimately, they will end with different circumstances. Now, Jesus provides a contrast to the love, ultimately, of God, who loves even his enemy, and of believers who are to love their enemies as well. And the contrast is, again, simply to unbelievers. This is how God is. You're supposed to be like him. You're not supposed to be like the world. So stop acting like the world. Stop loving like the world does. So Jesus is being very practical here. You need to be like God and his love, and you need not to be like the sinners of the world, the pagans of the world, who love with a selfish, foolish, limited love. Your love is to be different. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So the contrast of love is a contrast, again, of God's true love flowing through the believer. And really what I would call the echoes of love, and in essence, his love towards the unbeliever that lets him have any kind of love at all, that lets him be gracious to anyone at all, that withholds his sin and then at least doesn't kill his best friends or harm them. That's the gracious love of God to an unbeliever. But that's the best they can do is simply respond to people who love them. Greet those who greet them. Give to those who give back to them. That's an echo of the love of God, as it were. And we are to go far beyond that. He says, if you love those who love you, that's number one, you have no, there's no reward for that. 
Anybody can do that. And he uses a tax collector. He just goes to the, to the bottom level of what would be considered by the Jews to be the worst sinner around. I mean, you're like saying a rapist in our, in our day and age. It would. It would be that serious. Well, cert- I mean, certainly God, certainly though they don't love, or, or you know, certainly there, there's an unbeliever. Well, anyone, as it were, the worst of sinners can love those who love them, can do good to people who give back to them. Because you're not supposed to do that. You don't get any reward, as it were, for just acting like an unbeliever. Don't lower the love of God to the level of someone who doesn't know God at all. He's not, by the way, somehow being condescending towards tax collectors or Gentiles, because in other places he will say what? Those who would be considered the worst of sinners are the ones who first recognize their actual sin. He's not being pejorative. He's not throwing tax collectors and Gentiles under the bus. He's really throwing the scribes and Pharisees under the bus because they said, we're not like tax collectors. We are not like Gentiles. We're totally different. We love, they don't. He's saying, look, Pharisees and scribes, you don't love. You're just like the tax collectors and Gentiles. Your love is no different. Only if you truly enter the kingdom, only if you're truly a son, can your love reflect the love of God, and you are to love that way. There's no reward if you love those who love you. Tax collectors do it. And then he gives a second example greeting your, only your brothers. That is, again, that you have your friends, the people that you, you hang out with, the people that benefit from your possessions and your stuff and your time are just the people that greet you, as it were. Those that like you, those that are friendly with you. So if you do that, that's nothing special because what more are you doing than others? And then he uses the other term that is, again, just goes to the deepest level of what would, would consider to be sinners, Gentiles. Gentiles who don't have God's word, Gentiles who by nature and certainly in the Jewish mind, had rejected God. Those people can love that way. The, the one who would epitomize a sinner can greet the person who greets him. Now, it's not directly Jesus' point nor mine today, except that I would say if that's the kind of love that goes on in the church towards members of the church, we have miserably failed. And we love people who love us. We greet those who greet us. We have our kind of a little circle of group and people, guys, not that you shouldn't have friends and close friends and people that you hang out with more than others. That's fine. That's good. You have your small groups, do that. But if that's the only way your love is extended, everyone else is kind of outside your circle. Remember though, bigger picture and, and more appropriate to what Jesus is saying, the love has to extend beyond this church. See, this church and, and believers, well, they greet you. They love, they, if you only respond back to them. And again, there's a godly love which goes beyond worldly love to believers and to members of the church that we're supposed to have. Because if we can't extend our love to unbelievers and loving enemies, those who hate God and hate us, then we've we've miserably failed in what it means to truly love as God loves. And, re- and remember, Matthew says, in, or Jesus says in Matthew 21, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes, he includes later on Gentiles, they'll get into the kingdom of God before you because they're the ones that recognize they don't love and you don't. It's fundamental. You've, and, and isn't he being loving to the Pharisees here, the ones that were around? As he starts his very message, look, you don't, you don't get it. You don't love. You say love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemy. And only when you realize that you don't do that can you enter into my kingdom. He was trying to get them to see the level of their unrighteousness and that we as kingdom citizens have to have a greater level. Okay, so final point. What's the level of our love? How much are you supposed to love? Get ready. Hold on to your seats. Put on your seatbelt. Here it comes. Maybe you should love as much as me. I don't know. I would, I would not recommend that. I don't think that would be wise. Maybe you should love as much as John MacArthur. 
Now, some of you, he doesn't seem very loving. How about Joel Beakey? And was that a man who embodied love? It seems to me wonderful to be around him. Maybe he should be your litmus test. Well, no, it's going to have to go further than that. Let's look at our text. Therefore, so if we're going to love like this, is what he said, you are to be pretty loving. No, perfect. So the first thing on your outline, the standard of love is perfection. You might think, well, I mean, if that's human perfection, that, that's going to be pretty hard, but maybe we can get there. The scribes and Pharisees thought they had. Humanly, well, we've loved that. And remember, they hadn't even done that. But then he's, he describes the perfection he's talking about. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, be careful here. Some of you are instantly going to jump to justification. You're going to say, nobody can do this. So Jesus isn't saying you're supposed to love like that. He's just saying you can't possibly do that, so you need Christ. Now, he is saying that. But that's not the direct point here. The direct point here is that this is the standard for, this infinite perfection is the standard for sanctification. That is, it's not you're going to reach it. It's not that you, in order to get into the kingdom, have to love with this infinite perfection, or even within the kingdom as a human that you will, but that is the standard. You may not take the standard down and say, well, you know, I loved as much as was possible during my life. No, your standard is God, it's Jesus. And so what does that do? It draws us forward in being more loving. That's, I think, Jesus' main point here. The standard is not simply the Pharisees or the scribes or the best of religious leaders. Your standard of love is God himself. So don't stop loving. Don't stop progressing. Don't stop growing. And how do I know that? Well, there's commands all over Scripture that we are to be holy, even as believers, that we are to be holy as whom? God is holy. That's what the Scripture says. That's the standard of sanctification. Peter is clear. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You shall love as I love. Your love is to be perfect as mine is. Will it be on this earth? No. Are we able to say, well, then the standard is changed? No. Now again, I hope instead of crushing you, and we'll see why it doesn't crush you in just one second, so stay with me. But that actually encourages you. You're not supposed to look around and find a worldly standard of love. Look, look to God for love. And then, do, and then drive your whole life towards that purpose by the power of his spirit so that you might love as he does and find every day the joy of increasing in love because it will never end. You will never reach the limit of that love and so you can continue to progress. That's the joyful side of that. I understand it's challenging. I don't think very many of you are sitting here going, tell me how I can limit my love. I don't think any it will. There might be a few. I don't think any of you are sitting here saying that. So let's expand it. That's what Jesus does. It's supposed to be like God's. But, but, and this is very important, and I, I close here. You're all, bless you. The standard is also, this is the standard for justification. That is, how can we enter into the kingdom? How is it that we can be allowed to be in the presence of God, to even pursue his perfect love? Is that you first have to ha have been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. You have to actually, and that is, you have to, in, in God's economy, in his righteous justice, you have to be declared perfect. And certainly scripture speaks to that over and over, and Jesus himself would be the means by which that happened. That is, we need a righteousness that surpasses our own. And remember, again, fundamentally, love and righteousness down are, are, are equated down to the very core. There's no righteousness which does not come from love. And so you must have a perfect love. 
You must be clothed with a perfect love, a perfect righteousness, and in Christ you are when you repent and believe. That's what the Bible says over and over. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become what? Righteousness of God in him. We must be clothed with this perfect righteousness or we can never pursue any righteousness at all. We're not in the kingdom. We can't love. We have no desire, no ability to pursue this perfect love of God unless we've been first clothed in it. Philippians 3.8, more than that. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You have to have that. And certainly that is built into the text and built into the teaching and life of Jesus is that the perfection necessary to be in the kingdom is the perfect righteousness of Christ, and he provides it. It is his alone, and it is received only on the basis of faith. No other means. No righteousness of your own. No works done on your own. No, no church attendance, nothing. It is received only by faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone. You must have that. But if you do, and that is most of you in this room, and your standard to love this week is what? The perfect love of God. Pursue it with reckless abandon. And stop counterbalancing it by, by comparing it with somebody else's. Repent where you need to love more. Take hold of the, the joy of Christ and, and the grounding of his perfect righteousness and pursue this loving righteousness to its fullest degree this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the righteousness that you have provided for us in Christ. And I thank you that on that grounds and by that standard, we are able to stand before you in perfection with a perfect love, a perfect love imputed to us on the basis of Christ's perfect love for you and for us. Father, I pray that in light of that, that we would seek to love according to your perfect standard that it would be our passion and our delight to ever grow in this love and that it would extend to our enemies, to those who hate you and therefore hate us. As you are loving to them, might we be as well and might we always proclaim the truth of the gospel that they might have the opportunity to, to receive, to, to partake of your special electing love or that they might repent and believe. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access 
a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.